yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think about that now and, you know, nowadays, of course, I'd be like, man, the monitors were terrible and there was this and the sound was this and that. But back then, man, it was like, I'm playing a show and people are here watching me. This is a good thing. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Brandon T. Washington, and you may know Brandon from such bands as Solstice, Funky Butt Drum Club, Temple of Loman, Beat Kitchen, and currently New Souls. So, Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm awesome. really actually happy to be here. This is a really nice environment. So today we're going to be listening to your song Languid off of the album Degree of Slither. Yes. When you were with Temple of Loman. Yes. So without further ado, let's listen to the song. All right. Yeah. 
you stay the same I hate to call your Welcome back. So, Brandon, my first and favorite question to always ask is, what came first? Was it the lyrics or the music? It was the two guitar chords. Duh, duh, duh. It was that. I was living by myself at the time in a walk-up apartment. The stairs were outside. Wow. <laughs> so, you, like, wintertime, that was a whole lot of fun, let me tell you. Over on Elm Street in Champaign, and my downstairs neighbors were my very good friend Peter Rubel and his wife Gloria. Gloria Rubel, she sings and plays around town still. And Peter was the saxophone player in the Funky Butt Drum Club, and he plays with various blues and jazz things in Champaign, but he also teaches at Parkland. Living by yourself, things are pretty solo. I was in and out of some fairly healthy and non-healthy relationships at the time. <laughs> the initial idea came from the idea that even when things were in some of those maybe unhealthy relationships, there was still a point where everything was okay when you, I was with that person. That's where the whole thing about you know time stretching out and being a very slow and meandering thing and the word language came out of that. And being huh. like, really, you know, when you're with this person, time slows down kind of a thing. And that's where hmm. it came from, the, the impetus behind the tune. You said that it started off with the two chords. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that the feel between the two chords and that I get when I listen to it is it's a very like up, pleasant chord and then down chord. Mm -hmm. Up chord, and then down yep. chord. That, up chord and then, no <laughs> so i mean that didn't figure into it but it fits with the mood of the tune like i said i was in between things it was maybe a year before i met my wife the relationship that i left at the time was not very healthy for either one of us that does mirror what was really going on it, it wasn't conscious i'm sure it does mirror what was going on it was it was like things were good things were bad things were good things were bad so that goes to the heart of what the tune was about the, the end of the tune, I hate to call your name, you know. I want to be with you, but I really shouldn't, but it's, I'm drawn, you know, that kind of thing. When did the words come in? And I'm also curious, where did you start off with the words? Was it the chorus, or was it, like, first verse or second verse? It's or? It was... It, kind of through written like i started at the beginning with that this song doesn't really have like the chorus is the end of the verse 
kind of you know what i mean time is always languid all around you that line all the verses have that line in common so it like it's a one line kind of chorus if i'm gonna get songwriting technical uh-huh it's like a one line thing i didn't really come up with the hook until i had the word languid and i didn't really know how to use it until i got to the end of that verse home again but it's different again it's even like life is now you get home from work what's today's thing i gotta do now what's the thing that's bringing Mm. me down that i gotta deal with or or what's the thing that i get to celebrate right now or it's always different you come home from work and you're like okay what now and it's that kind of feeling was was where it begins but it would be cool to spend time with this person because time gets real slow with this person and we can just vibe out and that's that's kind of where it goes or how it worked i was going to ask about how the word languid managed to feel possibly good or possibly bad it was like honestly there are some times where you know you're spending a very amazing moment with a person and you wish that the time would be languid and that it would just go on forever and you could spend it right but then it's also there's that element of I don't know annoyance maybe well there's that and there's also the the unreality of it you know you're in this space with this person we've all had those relationships where you know there's one good thing you do well (laughs) (laughs) and and maybe just about everything else is not that great even outside the realm of a romantic relationship i feel like anybody can relate to that on any kind of relationship whether it's i mean honestly uh you could even be like a boss relationship right right? like because there's there there are some people that i have had as bosses that i'm just like well i guess there's one thing you do well right right (laughs) but other than that it's terrible right it's that thing where where there's this one area where everything is just lovely and everything moves slowly and it feels really good and it feels really good in all sorts of ways and there's everything that you have to deal with outside of that and i do kind of blow it up in the song talking you know i bring other things in talking about going out drinking and spending all of that time that we, that we spend partying and trying to distance ourselves maybe from the things that we're not happy with and getting home you know, swizzled again, you know, drunk. I guess while we're in that verse, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So I feel like this does define that back and forth. Slipping down tears, Samaritan mm. good years. Yeah. Staying out late 10 years too long. Yeah. That gets a little personal. Actually, I will go on record saying I've never had a drinking problem. I'm knock on wood and all of that kind of thing. But I think everybody has that period in their life where maybe they're just partying a little too much. And you either go forward with that and have lots of issues or you recognize it and maybe pull back from it a little bit. And that was right around the time in my life where I started to kind of figure out that maybe I can't go out all the time, you know, Right. and especially being a musician, you want to go see people play. You want to be out in it. You want to be all of those things. But then you start realizing that maybe you need to slow down a little bit. So, you know, staying out late 10 years too long. Maybe I had that vision of maybe being the old guy in the club. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's never a good look for anybody. Right. And that's kind of where that comes from, realizing that when you recognize things like that, you need to make changes in order for it to change, 
You need okay. to you need to actively do things instead of just sitting there going, well, I, I hope it's going to be like this, where you actually have to do something about it. And got a little bit of the personal thing in there. I As a songwriter, I've always struggled. Honestly, it's funny because it, we're in this era now in music where everything is very confessional. It's very uh. what you've gone through. I mean, I blame hip hop, which I love to death, but hip hop lyrics, rapping, it's very personal. It's very... I'm this, I'm that, I do this, I do that. And it's an effort to be a true story. Now, I'm, you know, of course we have great rappers like MF Doom who just talk and it's always awesome. Or cats that are, you know, very heavy on metaphor, which is awesome. But there's also a lot of this is my life story in a song. And I love blues inflected stuff and I love soul music and pop music. But I've always liked literate songwriters. I've always liked cats like Elvis Costello or, or Erica Badu who write things that are just like, okay, now what was that again? What are you actually talking about? That are using language and a little bit more to embroider the story that they're trying to tell. It may be a truthful thing, but it's, it's coded language that you have to decipher. It's coded language that you have to kind of immerse yourself in to, to figure out what's going on which uh, will lead us to the bridge and I'm going to shut up and let you get there. I mean, no. So, I I mean, honestly, let's, let's jump into the bridge. You in my morning, you in my day. Well, I was just talking about that with the coded language thing. Andy Lund wrote that. Andy Lund wrote the lyrics for the bridge. And I was very grateful for him for doing that because, you know, you get to a point with a song. I had all versus the man. This song needs a bridge, you know? And Andy's like, well, what about this? And, Andy, and I'm really happy that I get to say this because I've told this to people privately and I really would like to say it publicly once. One of the things that I loved and still love about Andy as a songwriter is that he is a great word painter. He can use abstract sounding lyrics that really, you know, it sounds like, wait, what? But then it's really, if you sit with it for a second and read it and go, oh, that's what he means. It's kind of that thing. And that's very pointed because I had written most of the tune and of course he kind of jumps in to trying to write it. He's a smart enough songwriter to mold into the style of the tune that he's working on. That whole you in my morning, that's a very Andy way to say that, to talk about this person as the only one, as the, you know, the light, the guiding principle, you in my morning, you in my day when it's two without warning. And that's that word painting I'm talking about. You know, what two? What two are you talking about, Andy? Well, of course he's talking about the two of us, me and this other person. I've always thought that that was excellent. I told him when he, when he, he's like, how about this? Like, this is it. This is perfect. Because I struggle sometimes doing that. I want to be that literate songwriter and I want to be that inscrutable person or cryptic sometimes even. But he actually does it, and he does it well. I've always ended up writing lyrics that are very direct. He uses that bridge as a pivot point as well. So, like, musically as a pivot point, but also you could almost say that the the first verse is definitely that introduction introduction (laughs) to the character, setting the mood or setting the the stage. And then there's, there's that sense of, in the second verse, of course, it's like we're establishing what the problem is. Right. And then the bridge is kind of this, is is a bridge, there it is, is a bridge Cha-ching. to the different 
idea of what is the solution and unfortunately it's going to be a very painful solution but right that's a very good mechanism and and so was the music written by andy actually well? yeah okay. i think if i'm remembering this right i had the three verses and i was i was like hey i need a bridge i don't i need this thing's a third part like it just needs something else when temple of Lumen was happening it was like there were two actually there were kind of three songwriting camps it was me and ian the ian shepherd the drummer it was me and andy and then it was the three of us they were like mm. that would come up with would try and come up with things andy lived, used to live in an apartment on uh, church street across from Westside Park, I would go over to his place. Sometimes after we would play a gig, because we did acoustic duo gigs together, and sometimes after a gig, I'd go over to his place and we'd eat a late meal and talk. And that whole songwriting thing that you that you romanticize when you're a kid, or at least maybe you don't, or maybe other people don't, but I did. You know, you're sitting with somebody and you're just trying to write songs and you're trying to talk about ideas that may work themselves into songs. And it was a period of my life I do look back upon fondly. It was fun and I learned a lot about writing and about how other people write. I'd want to say that it was one of those nights, but it may not have been. It may not, it may have been a rehearsal. It may have been a, a lot of things where he was like, oh, hey, okay, here's this bridge. And I was like, yeah, he wrote the music for it too. And, you know, to turn it around, to do something new, to get it back around to those two chords, adding some musical interest because he was he's a still is a hell of a guitar player he's not just a guitar player and i'm not trying to insult guitarists at all because i right. play guitar as well but he is a very musical guitar player he thinks about the chords he's playing it's not just well i need to do this he's moving notes around his sense of harmony is really strong so he's thinking that way too which even though i am you know i teach music for a living and all of this stuff i have been such a vocalist my entire mm. life that sometimes I think about melodies so strongly that I don't really consider the harmony, especially the harmony of the backing of what's going on. A lot of times I'm just like the harmony as the melody related to what's going on behind it, but I don't necessarily think about what's going on behind it and the internal melodies and harmonies that that contains. And mm. he does that really well. And I think that was one of the reasons why, because we wrote four tunes on that four maybe five i'd have to look at it again but together and also two or three just solo writing credits on the record too mm -hmm. where it sounds like a simple song and then you watch him play it and you're like wait a minute what was that again well yeah. what chord was that that just sounded like c to me but you've got like all these other things happening and that's you know that was one of the big pluses to him coming up with that bridge is that the descending line of the bridge and the way that it comes back around to the original motif da, 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 it just was masterful the way he did it and i am eternally grateful for him for doing that because that is one of the things that makes this one of the favorite things that i've been a part of and done like how did this kind of form together with those you know you started off with the two chords um you had a, a bridge that was formed in with Andy, how did this get fleshed out? Like I said, Andy and I had been doing duo gigs together, and I started playing guitar when I was 13. My whole thing when I first started playing was I'm trying to do something so I can accompany myself singing because I'm a singer. For many, many years, I'm down here in first position <laughs> playing yeah. basic chords, and of course, getting older and playing more electric, I was, you know, starting to get more intricate. 
But when we brought it into the band, Ian, the drummer, he's a very arrangement-minded guy. You know, he's the drummer, so he's always thinking about what can I emphasize, what can I, you know, what can I build up to, and how can I make the tension rise and release it in a good way, and, you know, that's how he thinks musically. If I'm remembering this correctly, and those guys, hopefully, hearing this, maybe they would either contradict or support. It was probably one of those things where Andy and I brought it in to rehearsal. I want to say, because Ian and I did duo gigs as well. He would play hand percussion, mm-hmm. I play guitar and sing. Um, and I want to say that I probably played the song with them in that configuration. And of course, all three of us sometimes would do the thing before the band actually got down in Andy's basement and played it electrically. Because I know that Ian probably had some influence as to how the song worked together. Mm-hmm. But during recording, however, we did basics. We recorded that record in Andy's house and took it over huh. to John Pines and he mixed it. That was another thing Andy is good at. He's a pretty good recording engineer. And he had a fairly decent setup in his house. We borrowed some things and rented a couple of things and ran a snake from the second floor down to the basement and uh-huh. you know like that. But when we did it, I'm playing acoustic guitar on the basic track and then I re-recorded it, of course, for, you know, just to to get a good part happening instead of it bleeding all other stuff all of the other things that happen tones the ghostly guitar things the six and seven guitar parts that was all andy i remember i remember as we did the basics and then it was like you know everything was done and we ian had re-recorded what he needed to re-record i had done my guitar parts and had sung almost all of it and then andy just had it and he had it and he still had it. And we were like, dude, what's going on? <laughs> and then when we would hear these tunes, we're like, oh, that's what he was doing. Cause there's Uh-oh. like just yeah, all yeah. of this gorgeous guitar and other little weird overdubs and things that just really made the songs songs instead of just four dudes banging him out in this house. It was mm. that plus all of this gorgeous atmosphere and plus all of this buildup of tension and release of tension and the way that he would orchestrate those things. He really did flesh those tunes out a lot on recordings. As far as getting it knocked out as to what was going to happen when and how, that was really an effort between the two of us to kind of really get that together with probably most likely an assist from Ian in the moment during Mm -hmm. rehearsal saying, hey, why don't we do this? Because he thinks that way. There's a lot of parts that I like, but, you know, as we've discussed this, you know, it's funny because I'll start off with parts that I I like or I could describe as my favorite part. In talking to you about this song, maybe it's just because I like sad things sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I do like the last verse, the resolution, so to speak, or the change. You know, you stay the same, which that makes me think so much about how you break up with someone or you dissolve a relationship with someone and then you come back years later and it's like oh you haven't changed at all and i feel like i have made these large changes in my life yeah i in a way i understand that in the sense of the tune the way that that line works at least for me though was is slightly different it's more like 
the things that these unspeakable or these ambiguous things I keep talking about, you know, things being bad, but there are these bubbles of beautiful time that you have with this person. For me at that time, it was the immediacy of pulling away like, okay, I need to extract myself from this. And then like a day later, you look at this person, you're like, yeah, you're still doing the same things that I need to stay away from, but I hate to call your name, but I'm still going to go over there and do these stupid things I'm doing with you, (laughs) you know, and I hate the fact that I'm doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. That's actually a theme that runs through that record, at least my lyrics on that record. There's another tune called Half a Step that is probably the saddest thing I've ever written. Another range of beautiful overdubs and parts by Andy on that tune as well. Ian's drumming on that song in particular, the one I'm talking about, Half a Step, is also extremely wonderful that line in particular is kind of a despairing thing because right after that i go on to talk about how i don't want to do this stuff but when i think about life without this person look at this laundry list of things that are awful if i'm without them i'm doing a bad thing and i know i'm doing a bad thing but i'm going to do this bad thing anyway and you were talking about how it you know reevaluating listening i mean because this is 20 years the record came out in 2001 i'm realizing now that that's the theme that runs through these lyrics I wrote, even if I wasn't conscious of it at the time, there's a lot of, I'm doing something bad here and I realize I'm doing something bad, but it feels good. So I'm going to do it anyway. There was a lot of that going on in my life at that time. And, and that's really what those songs were that thread that I can do bad all by myself kind of thing. It's a major lyrical thread that runs through three of the tunes. I dare say maybe even four of the tunes on that album that I wrote the lyrics for. What's your favorite part in this song? No matter how much guitar I play or how many beats I make at home, I've always realized, and it's mostly brought back to the fore for me at work. I'm a public school teacher. I teach general music at the elementary level in Champaign. And I tell my kids a lot, especially a lot this week, mostly because of the pandemic, we are all masked. So I haven't been singing as much with my kids. Last year I was on Zoom. So teaching music has been really difficult these last couple of years, just really hard. But I made up my mind that because my first graders were singing so badly that I was just like, okay, we're, we're gonna work on singing. In doing that, I realized that the asset that I have that is one of the things I lean on as a musician is the fact that I'm a singer. It's the fact that I feel like I do a pretty good job after doing it for 20 some years now, almost 30. I feel like that I can interpret a song. I feel like that I can bring the feelings in a song out through my voice. So because of that, and it's cliched, but but it's the truth. My favorite part is the ending. That last verse where I, you know, there's a big note at the end and I hold it for a really long time. And Andy came in. This is another Andy thing. The the background vocals at the end. Time is always languid. All that. He, that's it. That was his idea. He started doing that. I was like, that's perfect. You know, that, uh-huh. that kind of thing. That whole section from the breakdown to the end from a songwriting standpoint it's like you know it's the ending it actually builds effectively and the tension gets released yo you know and it's and it's a a big moment and one of the reasons this song has stuck around for me and i still play it when i play acoustically i've done it a couple of times not recently but i've done it a couple of times on new souls breaks there's three of us we try to play all the time you know because breaks people walk out the door so we do this thing where mike may play a tune and cc and i leave and then cc and i play a tune and mike leaves or and then maybe both of them leaves and i i do a tune by myself i've done languid in that instance before i've done it when i play solo i've done it when i play with ian it's just the song that's stuck around and part of it is because 
without anything else, I can play that song just on a guitar and sing it, or I could just sing it if I had to. Mm. And all of, you don't lose any of the emotion, any of the feeling of the tune, unlike something that's that's got a lot of production on it, that has a lot of bells and whistles and has this and that. Sometimes you may not be able to break that tune down to its core and have it work. But that song is a song that I feel really good about having written because it does that. I can play that song on piano. I could play that song on guitar. I could sing it by myself. I could sing a cappella with no accompaniment and I could still make it work. People ask me about that song. I've had that song requested. It's just always around. And for a minute, I did have that feeling where people, people get, you know, you go see your favorite band. Oh, I want to hear that song. No, we're not doing that. Right. Man, come on. You know, and I yep. understand, but I understand because there was a point, like I said, the song is 20 years old now. There was a point where I'm like, I'm not going to play it anymore. I can't do it. I can't. It's just, no, I've had enough of it. And, you know, I lay, lay off of it for a few months or, or for a while, and but it always comes back. It's the one that I wrote that I feel like it's the sturdiest house. It was the first tune. It was the first Temple of Low Men song. Funky Butt was over, but we still wanted to play together. And I'll be really honest and say this was 99. I turned 30 in 03. So it was like, you know, late 20s, kind of feeling that that feeling like, man, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this now. Like I'm because pretty soon Ian got married while the band was together. He started having kids. I was just at that point in my life where I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this now because at some point I'm going to have to not do this and mm -hmm. like actually get myself right. You know, there was this sense of urgency to it. So Ian and I got together and we're like, well, you know, let's talk to Andy, see if we want to do this thing. And we, we got it together. And this was the first song that, uh, Guido Estevez was playing bass at the, when the band started, we cut degree of slither and then Guido left and Josh Walden, who had played bass in funky, Butt, became our bass player. We also added Anthony Gravino, who, uh, we used to live in Chicago, but he's got a studio out in Urbana now. Yeah. We, he's you know, on high cross. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's doing a lot of good stuff. He's, he's on a, uh, he, I just have to shout out my, oh, the my gra Grammy. Yeah. Right? I got to shout out my boy. Cause he like. He cut the vocals for Kurt Elling's latest record. Kurt Elling is one of my favorite singers, period. That dude is amazing. Mm. From Chicago, you know, just a, a jazz singer's jazz singer. That dude is, man, powerful, inventive. He can solo like a like a horn player. It's just ridiculous. And Anthony recorded the vocals for this latest. I, I, he told me that I'm like, Kurt Elling came to her band. He's like, yeah, came out the thing. <laughs> I'm like, I mean... Half of me's like, you need to tell me when that happens. <laughs> and the other half is like, I'm so glad he didn't tell me because I didn't want to be a fanboy and go out there and I'm not trying to get in nobody's work, you know, <laughs> like get in right. the way of anybody trying to like do some work. But that just makes me feel really happy that he was a part of that. But even with those personnel changes, the song stuck around because mm. they both liked it. It's really a testament to me that when people in the band like it, not only the people that come see us, but when the people in the band are like, man, that's a good song. That's another reason why it, it, it ends up on my favorite list and ends up on my set list more often than not. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004, carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. 
Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week, they can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Welcome back. So, Brandon. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Champaign-Urbana venue? There are venues that I liked for different reasons. When I first started playing out in town, you wanted to play at Mabel's. That was what you wanted to do because Mabel's was on campus. It was huge. It was upstairs. They had big shows. You wanted to either open for one of the big shows or mm. play a big show there yourself. You know, of course, this is before you realize what that means and how you end up in those positions to play those shows because this is show business. We forget that it is sometimes, uh -huh. but it is. Back then, that was the place you wanted to play because the stage was the biggest and best and the room was cool. You also wanted to play at the pig because it was smaller, but you could still play at a certain volume, you know, and it was okay. People weren't going to die because right. you, were, you were playing, you know, electric music. As the 90s went into the 2000s and Mabel's closed and Pig changed hands and ended up becoming the monkey, the high dive was the joint. It really was. Like, I saw Queens of the Stone Age play there. It sounded great. It was the right size. It was the right sight lines. You could be anywhere if you were anywhere on the floor of that bar off to the side even over by the door the door leading over to the other side of the bar you could see what was going on you could hear what was going on it was my favorite place to hear a band in town for a long time andy and i opened for the samples there one night it was really a special thing and like you were talking about the cover-up earlier there's video of temple of lament way past one where i mean it was me and Anthony playing guitar and Chris Idle, who used to play bass with Ryan uh, Groff in Elsinore years ago. And Ian and the, the four of us did Alice in Chains. And there's video of us doing Rooster when I talk about what I do. Well, this is me singing an Alice in Chains cover with some friends of mine. And I'll show it to him on YouTube. The way it looks, the way it sounds, it's just exactly what you want. It was my favorite place to play for a while. And then when that really wasn't what it was anymore, it kind of became the monkey because it always sounded good. Chief thing, what folks don't really understand is that the sound to the people on stage, we think about sound different than you do. I'm a singer. I get laughed at and people, my friends that I play with sometimes roll their eyes, but I'm like, I have to hear my voice pretty loud in those monitors so that I'm not killing myself when y'all start turning up the volume and, whoop, and stuff starts oh, happening. Yeah. I need to be able to hear because I sing really loudly. I can't run the risk of destroying myself vocally. We're talking about low-men music and some of the funky butt stuff. I'm like singing in the upper third of my range like most of the time. And right. that's very tiring. <laughs> and if I can't hear it right, I can't hear it right. But that was one of the things that I, that I liked about the high dive and I liked about the monkey is that I could hear myself really well. And it also makes a difference working with guys like Jimmy Myers, Larry Moore, you know, the sound guys we worked with over the years, these guys know what they're doing. And also you get to know them. Jimmy and Larry know what my voice sounds like. They know what they need to do to make my voice get across the way it's supposed to. And they know what we like to hear on stage. Lately, you know, high dive's gone, the monkey's gone. And I, the monkey's still there. It's just a restaurant now and nobody plays there. 
Urbana's been kind of stepping into the void. You got the Rose Bowl happening, and there's some things happening in NOLA as well. And <laughs> my favorite venue, the place that'll let me play there. You know, right. <laughs> like yeah. When I was in college, there was a there was a place called Trinos, right right next to the music building. I was a music student. Place called Trinos, right next to the music building. It's where the bread company is now. The Solstice was the first band I was ever in in, in college. You know, Solstice played it on the floor in this restaurant at Trinos. Like they had shows on the weekend, so you just dragged a PA in there and and you set up on the floor of the corner and they cleared the tables and there you nice. went. You know, and that was like that yeah, was a lot of fun. I think about that now and you know nowadays, of course, I'd be like, man, the monitors were terrible and there was this and the sound was this and that. But back then, man, it was like I'm playing a show and people are here watching me. This is a good thing. Right. So that's kind of how I feel venue wise, you know. What are the you know what was your favorite venue to play? The one that'll have us play and maybe have us back. Going through a pandemic, it has become more and more clear that us humans need to go out and see live music or feel like a part of a community to feel like something bigger than ourselves. I've been meditating and thinking on the idea of like what makes a good music community or even just what makes a good community. I want to pick your brain in terms of what do you think makes a good music community? One of my favorite books is Miles Davis's autobiography where he drops the f-bomb like 500 600 times in the book it's beautiful even going back to something like that even going down south to like the old school like the juke joint days all of those dudes knew each other everybody was friends the last great scene but there were a couple of scenes seattle the manchester thing when i was in college with you know happy mondays and you know the stone roses and all that all those dudes knew each other Chris Cornell is one of my favorite voices of the 90s, and I'm so mm. sad he's gone. But like, all of those cats were friends. They knew each other. That's one of the biggest things that I think helps make a scene, is that when folks feel something for each other, when they're actually friends, when they get along, even if it's a friendly rivalry, if they get along and there's reason to go out and support and be around these people and do creative things, let's make a show where we do this, or you know things like that. When those things are happening, those are key to making something that people want to be a part of. That's key, I think. Also, we were talking about venues before. There has to be venues that are willing to support. There have to be venues that are willing to have a show with a couple of young bands on a Wednesday or Thursday night and be prepared for there to be 50 people in the club. It just has to be that way. Now, I'm not trying to say that you know people shouldn't make money or anything like that. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just saying that when people are trying to build something, when there's trying to be, when a scene is trying to exist, and I use that term loosely, I know people don't like that term, but it's the way that I've always seen it, is that when you're trying to do something like that, it's not just gonna be an automatic, you know, you're going home with 150 bucks a night playing. It just doesn't work like that. Because we're talking about, this is art and commerce time. This is when you start, and I started to realize back in the day, how conflicted those two things are. I'm just gonna say it publicly, you know, being in New Souls and, you know, we're a cover band primarily, and we do functions and we do this and that, and we do okay for ourselves. When I was playing in rock bands that were doing original work that was highly respected, the financial end of it was not nearly what it is when you play in a cover band. So that art versus commerce thing has to be handled well, whether it's a venue maybe taking a hit because they're 
you know, they put on a show that maybe didn't do as well as they maybe needed it to, mm-hmm. whether it's performers. And I hate to say this because I've been a musician a long time. And one of the things you tell musicians a lot is you shouldn't play for, shouldn't play for free because you shouldn't, you just shouldn't. But in order to get your foot in the door, a lot of times you have to, and that's the reality of it. And it's terrible because no one should put forth all of the effort that it takes to get a musical act together. The rehearsing, the sheer monetary cost, you got to buy an instrument, you got to upkeep that instrument, you got to make recordings. And nowadays it's easier than ever. Here we are sitting in a space in your house doing this. It's easier than ever to make your recordings at home, but that still is an initial cost outlay. You got to buy a computer, you got to buy software, you got to buy mics. All of those things cost money. You should be paid to play. Having said all of that, because being a firm believer in being paid to play, I also understand that when you're trying to get something off the ground, when you're trying to put something together and get people excited, sometimes people don't get paid on either end of it. Venue, performer, representative of the performer, agent, whatever. Also, there has to be the ancillary things. I'm sitting here looking at your door covered in stickers, Mm -hmm. and that's all different now because back in the day, pre-internet, you know, stickers and flyers and signs and merch even, all of that stuff was really important towards helping grow a community of musicians and like-minded individuals around that. But you need that ancillary stuff too. You need ancillary. It's not really ancillary. You need that additional stuff. You need the artists. You need folks doing other creative things that are aligned with what's happening. I think back to Miles Davis and and Dizzy Gillespie and the whole hard bop thing. That was just after the Harlem Renaissance. This is the 40s post-war. And the Harlem Renaissance is really the 20s and 30s. There was a lot of other art that came out of jazz. There's a lot of other art that came out of the punk, punk in the 80s. There's a lot of other art that came out of the, you know, just after that new wave. You need those things to kind of cement the scene and show that it's not just about the clothes or the, you know, that there's more of it. There's more to it. There is a substance to it more so than just a certain kind of hi-hat pattern or a certain guitar tone. There's got to be more to it than just the way this guy raps his lyrics or the way the beat sounds. You know, there's got to be more to it than that. And you need those things to grow a healthy music community somewhere. You've got to have all of these things around it too. Let's let's start with something negative and then go positive. <laughs> but what could Champaign-Urbana do better with the music scene? Have more venues spread out evenly across both cities. For many years to me, it has always seemed that either you were going, if you were playing live, you were going to play in Champaign, especially after the downtown renaissance that happened around the late 90s, early 2000s, when places like the High Dive and and the Monkey opened. That was pretty much where I did most of my playing was in downtown Champaign. Now, it seems like if I'm going out to play, you know, New Souls does a bunch of different things. We do a lot of private stuff and, and things like that. But if we're going to go play a club show, which is something we haven't done a whole lot lately, but pandemic. Uh, yeah, go figure. But if we're going to go play a club show nowadays, we're playing at the Rose Bowl or we're playing at NOLA. Every once in a great, great while, we're playing at uh, City Center right there mm. next to the viaduct right yeah. just off campus. It's it's shifted now. We're over in Urbana. I think we need more venues because in years past, we used to have a lot. But see, here's the problem, though, too. Nightlife has changed. And that's one of the things that back in the day when I was in original bands, we used to gripe all the time, just bitch, about mm, cover bands, DJs, meh, you know, 
we're, right. we're a band playing original music. Why can't we? You know, and it was always that thing, you know, that fight, that art and commerce fight again. Nowadays, I'm realizing that people's entertainment dollar, it used to be that there were separate things like, oh, you know, there's your going out money, but then, you know, oh, there's people going to a movie or they're going to do this other thing or they're going to Cranert for some highbrow live entertainment or whatever. Nowadays, that entertainment dollar is the entertainment dollar. That dollar is either going to go to the Hollywood movie studios or the DJ down the street who's spinning your favorite jams that night, or that dollar is going to go right into your subscription service so you can sit at home and watch Black Widow. It's different now. There was an emotional component to it. I don't know if that emotional component is still there. I think people are just realizing that I have this much money to spend on having fun. I'm going to have fun how I want to have fun. And I don't know if they're necessarily going out to see live music as much as they used to anymore. And also the volume level is different. I came up during the quote unquote grunge era when it was still acceptable to play a loud guitar somewhere that has changed too Hmm. because PAs, well, PAs have gotten better. Guitar amps have gotten smaller and better in a lot of ways at generating certain tones at lower volume. So it's not as loud as it used to be, but that also has contributed to the factor where there are, you know, certain club owners. No, I'm, I'm not slagging anybody in town because I've never really heard this in town, but I've heard it happening in other cities where I have friends living where it's, mm. you know, you go in, oh, it's too loud. You guys got to turn it down, you know, things like that. I think that one of the things that Champion Urbana could do better is have more venues. But at the same time, you know, we're living in this time of disease and COVID and whatnot. And that has gone a long way towards changing how that works because Charlie and them over at the Rose Bowl have been working real hard to kind of keep something going on. And I just have to give, I have to give them all the love for that. Nola's been trying to kick it hard and do some things. And, you know, it's just really difficult right now. I guess here's the positive note. What does the Champaign-Urbana music scene do well? Be diverse. Hmm. I think it does that very well. Years ago, I would write for publications occasionally and i was asked to do like a scene rundown and i talked about the fact that at that time you could go see basically from thursday to sunday you could pick your genre of music and go see it from everything that was going on and i you know i have two degrees from u of i i i was lucky enough to play el nora a couple years ago from all of the crazy high quality stuff that they have at Cranert from people like Dan Zane singing kids songs to Bill T. Jones doing his the crazy awesome modern choreography the dance stuff that they have going on to all the drama that's done in-house from the school itself my friend Cynthia Oliver I was lucky enough to be a part of a dance piece that she wrote I sang and and played some guitar that she used a recording of that the dancers danced to and it was crazy like it won awards for her and things i was like okay i guess i'm part of something real on this you know you got that whole vibe you've got that traditional u of i fueled jazz thing that happens here that doesn't really happen in a whole lot of places where you've got these kids making combos and trying to go out and play and then you've got the whole alt rock thing and you've got DJs, you've got a lot of people doing indigenous music from the traveling Nepalese people playing the reverbed yeah. out <laughs> drums and, and right, right. panpipes and stuff. You just have all of these different things available to you in town. And it's one of the reasons that I've lived here for 30 years is because mm. the 
level of diversity in town musically and creatively, not to discount things like Craner Art Museum and the pretty healthy art scene that exists in Champaign-Urbana, the way that these things work here doesn't really happen in towns of this size. It just doesn't. And I have felt extremely fortunate to be able to be a part of a community of musicians that I've been able to play with and have been asked to play with and I've been asked to do things that I just feel super fortunate that I've been able to do that. Because if I lived in Chicago, who knows if I'd have the reputation that I have, my name wouldn't be on people's lips to be, hey, you know, if you need this, if you need somebody to sing for this, you should ask Brandon, you know, that that actually happens living here. And I'm hitting my knees thankful for that. Because I believe that I'm doing the two things that I was put here to do, which is sing and teach. I felt extremely lucky. I knew what I wanted to do when I was about 18, 19 years old. And I've managed to be able to do it. Not a whole lot of people can say that. I feel super fortunate that I can say that. Super fortunate. Like, grateful beyond belief. Even in the midst of the current coronavirus pandemic, the Jubilee Cafe is continuing to serve packaged, home-cooked meals free to all every Monday evening, 5 to 6.30 p.m. Meals are available for pickup outside the 6th Street door to the Community United Church of Christ in Champaign, Illinois, 805 South 6th Street. Jubilee Cafe's mission remains the same. Feed hungry people by cooking healthy and delicious meals. We are open to anyone who cares to receive a meal. For information on the meal or how to volunteer, go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email us at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Welcome back. So, Brandon, what is your favorite non-musical thing or things? When I was a kid, like, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, I started reading the Encyclopedia Brown novels. And since then, most of the fiction that I've read has been detective fiction. And I know we live in this era right now of a lot of dirty cops and cops doing bad things and all that stuff. But for years... I would read detective novels, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe stories Mm. and Robert Parker's Spencer stories, Robert Cray's Elvis Cole and Joe Pike novels, James Lee Burke, Dave Robichaux novels. Like it was the guy who was the last guy. Like he was the guy that you went to when you couldn't go to anybody else and the cops aren't going to help you. And here's this guy who's willing to do the thing that has to get done for you to be better, for you to get through this tough part in your life. I just have always loved them. George Pelicanos, who was a writer on The Wire and on Treme, he was a producer on Treme as well. He's written a bunch of series set in the Washington, D.C. area that are just phenomenal. Crime books. I don't know why. I blame Encyclopedia Brown. I mean, I read other things. In all honesty, my favorite book, period, is a book called The Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love, which is what the film was based on. The Mambo Kings, Armando Sante, and, and, and uh, Antonio yeah. Banderas was in it. The film is okay. The book is spectacular. Absolutely amazing. Lots of magic realism, because that's what Oscar Huelos was into. But it's also very, very musical. It's, it's about two guys who form a, a mambo band 
in New York City. And it's just great. So when you say it's just very musical, you know, you're reading it in a book. Like, what what about it makes it musical? I mean, there's literal music in the book. There's one chapter where Hijuelos just talks about different kinds of drums for two and a half, three pages. There's lots of talk about how they're arranging the music. The whole image of the band going and playing, like, you know, all night at some club and then going to Violetas for Cuban food in the middle of the mm. night. The song is called Beautiful Maria of My Soul. And one of my favorite groups of all time, Los Lobos, wrote the song for the movie. And it's amazing. And, of course, so I hear that when I'm reading it in the book. It's also, there's a lot of Cuban food in it, which I was not very familiar Mm. with when I started reading it. I was like, I want to try a Cuban sandwich. (laughs) Right. You know, it turns out Cuban sandwiches are amazing. That's my favorite book of all time. But a very close second is a book called Homicide Life on the Street which was the book that the television show that Andre Brower kind of first was really noticed for. It's where that show came from was that book. It is a year in the life of the Baltimore Police Department homicide unit. And it's flat out gorgeous. That's the guy, David Simon wrote that book. David Simon is responsible for The Wire. David Simon was the original executive producer for Homicide Life on the Street with Andre Brower and Yafet Kato and Richard Belzer, which was the first place he played Detective John Munch, which of course he has played on television more than any other character right. <laughs> in history. But that book, it's, it's huge. It's like 500 pages long, but it is the most unglamorous, realistic look at what homicide detective work is like what it does to the person doing it, what it does to their view of the community and what the function they perform in the community. It's just an mm. excellent, excellent book. I do like movies. I watch a lot of Marvel movies because I'm an old comic book head. I really like comic oh, books yeah. when I was younger. Do you have a favorite Marvel comic? That's, that's or character, should that's I say? tough. You know, Black Panther became a lot of people's favorite comic, but the first Black Panther comic I ever read, I was eight years old. He was black. He was a king and a scientific genius. Excuse me, what? You know, (laughs) can I have some more of that, please? This is how deep it goes with Black Panther for me. We're sitting there. I'm sitting with my son. We went to see, oh my goodness. It was a different Marvel film, but it was before Black Panther had come out, but the trailer was on it. And there's a scene. It's the, the first big chase scene in the movie. And he's chasing Claw and he uses the suit's ability to transfer kinetic energy for the first time. And he's on the hood of the one car, boom, and jumps up in the air and does a backflip and lands on the car his sister is driving. And he's up moving in slow motion. I just had tears in my eyes. It was ridiculous because I was like, this is, oh my God, it's actually happening. They're making a Black Panther movie. Now, yeah. there have been other black heroes. Cyborg in the Justice League is black. Uh, Will Smith made a superhero movie a few years ago called Hancock. And also he was a man in black. The men in black are a comic book thing. That's where they came from. But ain't none of them Black Panther. Black Panther was a whole different thing. He was Tony Stark, but black. He was a king. You know, he wasn't a guy who was pretending to be a short order cook. But then by night he was, you know, he was a king of his own country. Black Panther was, he was one of my huge huge favorites from back in the day i read a lot of avengers when i was a kid but my brother was a big x-men fan i have an mm. older brother he's five years older than me um he was a huge x-men person so i remember reading the entire dark phoenix saga in real time as it came out you know things like that i'm just not very happy with what they've done with the x-men on screen lately oh. just, 
It was everybody said, "Oh yeah, first class is great," and then I watched. I'm like, "This is kind of terrible." Uh, actually, first class was okay, but the ones after it, which are some of the, they're like stories that form the backbone of modern day comics, the Dark Phoenix Saga and the whole uh, Days of Future Past thing with the Sentinels and all mm. this. Just horrible films, just horrible, horrible movies. I felt the same way about that Justice League movie that I took my son to see. And mm. I was like, I was kind of excited about it. Henry Cavill Superman is excellent. I just, you know, but the movie was just god awful. And I haven't been able to sit through the four hours of the, the Snyder Cut yet. Mm. But it, it just, ugh. but I love superhero yeah. movies, love them. Brandon, thank you so much for being on the show and telling me about your song language i am literally overwhelmed with all the things that we talked about and i cannot wait to edit this and put it out but thank you so much for coming to the show and You're talking welcome. with me and i really appreciate it well thanks for being willing to have me i you know when you're a kid and you want to be a rock star or whatever one of the fantasies you have is I'm going to be interviewed on TV by Barbara Walters, you know, or whatever, you know, yeah. you just get that. People ask me to talk about things, but I'm, I very rarely get to talk about things like this. Like this is the kind of thing that if somebody was going to talk to me about, I'd want to talk about my music and the effect of my music in the community and how I feel being a musician in the community. There's things like that. That's what I want to talk about. I don't necessarily want to talk about what, what cologne do you wear? You know, right. <laughs> whatever. I don't wear cologne. Leave me alone. It's fun to actually talk about the music. Thank you for listening to Champagne is also a band podcast. This is Brandon T. Washington reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live. a wrap. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. on the inside. Cover bands, DJs, man, you know, we're a band playing original music. Why can't we bear?